Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 106. Because some of our religious conceptions about sexuality have been so restraining, we haven't really given people a lot of language to find something that is more healthy and open, and it's a problem. Emily Scott is a church planter and a Lutheran pastor who believes that Christian practice holds rich possibilities which call us to reach across boundaries in love. She believes in learning through discomfort and building relationships that bring God's realm close. She identifies as queer and genderqueer and is committed to building communities of faith that dismantle fear and hate, affirm LGBTQ plus people, and confront racial injustice. She's the author of the book For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World, which released from Convergent earlier this year, and it received star reviews from Kirkus Reviews, Booklist, and Publishers Weekly. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and The Christian Century. If you remember way back to when Nadia Boltz-Weber was on the show, that was several episodes ago, it was actually Nadia who who reached out and said, Matthias, you need Emily on your show. And I got a copy of her book, I opened it up, and was just blown away by how beautiful her writing is. It, it is some of the most poetic prose, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Some of the most poetic prose that I have read in a really long time. I'm so excited to have her on the show today. She currently serves as the founding pastor of Dreams and Visions, an imaginative spiritual community of restoration, which is rooted in the LGBTQ plus community. She was formerly the founding pastor of St. Lydia's Dinner Church in Brooklyn, where worship was a full meal shared around a dinner table. We talk a lot about that. We talk about her story. We talk about, you know, all kinds of stuff as we do on Queerology. No announcements today. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Emily, hi, welcome. Hi. I am so excited to have you on Queerology. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah. So so to start, I'll I'll start with the question that I ask everyone. How do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? I identify as a queer woman who is also genderqueer, as someone who retains my identity as a woman but also exists on the spectrum of gender. I am queer from a sexuality perspective, and I'm also someone who's grown up and lives under the privileges and influence of whiteness and has benefited from that. And also, um, yeah, my life has been formed and shaped by that experience. I have roots in the Deep South and also in Canada, in um, Vancouver, Canada, and um, the kind of Midwest, everything from... um, sort of very low-income farmers in the South to kind of upper-middle-class folks uh, in the Midwest and in Canada. And yeah, I'm a Christian. I grew up in um, a very sort of progressive, liberal, Episcopalian context, going to a cathedral as a kid, and um, 
our church was one of the first to have a gay marriage. And I remember, um, going to church and having protesters outside. And I thought that that was like, just what church was like. (laughs) So that was my context for faith growing up, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which I know wasn't everyone's, Mm -hmm. but it was a huge gift. Um, And I think that my faith has formed my identity um, in terms of finding stories in the Bible of liberation. That that took a long time, but I think eventually in my life, I have started to see so many threads of liberation for so many different kinds of people woven through the Bible. And that has made my faith something that feels like it's a sort of constant coming out and emerging as opposed to trying to walk like a particular path or trying to shut down certain pieces of myself if that makes sense. Walk a particular path, shut down certain pieces of yourself. I mean, I'm imagining that those are things that you have experience with. Yeah, I think so. And never actually, I wouldn't say that those experiences came directly from the church because I did emerge in a church context that was, that was so welcoming in a lot of ways. But I think the culture around me as you know, as all of us do, we, we grew up in a culture that just has a lot of scripts that we're supposed to sort of follow. And it took me, you know, most of my lifetime thus far to kind of shed some of those scripts and find my own script for who I am, especially when it comes to femininity and masculinity. I think that I just accepted for a long time that a sort of heteronormative view of the world, in as much as I had like tons of friends who were gay and queer, um, it was hard for me to see that queerness in myself because of this kind of underground tape recording that was running all the time. So you just published a book a couple months ago, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. And in that book, I mean, you, I, I think very much just in the first chapter, which is most of what I've read. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned this idea of a calling, and, and then you mentioned this kind of reluctance. Uh, you mentioned the Jonah story. And I'm so curious kind of how you got from this kind of Episcopalian upbringing, Deep South, Vancouver, like all of these places to a little Lutheran church in Brooklyn, New York. What was that? I mean, I imagine that's quite the journey, but but what was that? What kind of prompted all that? Well, you know, I was formed primarily in a, in a big old cathedral in Seattle that's called St. Mark's. And um, so I grew up in this big cathedral, which was, it's, it's a very unusual building. Um, they sort of ha- stopped halfway through construction because um, of the Great Depression. So it's a big like cinder block square a very unusual church and, um, you know, big classical music program, like all of these things. But it was also this very sort of earthy expression of sacramentality. Like we had a huge, huge baptismal font when you entered the space. And it was honestly big enough that you could put like a whole kid into it. (laughs) And when I was going there, they kept it so full that um, when you... Sometimes people, you would actually dunk a baby in there and the water would just kind of splash all over the floor. <laughs> and um, as it turns out, the, one of the, the liturgists who was there at the time was a lesbian woman and very deeply immersed in feminist liturgical theology, which I later became very interested in. But long story short, I kind of grew up very immersed in these um, very rich symbols of the faith, water and bread and um, very much uh, a transcendent expression of faith that we could be sort of elevated and transported into the presence of God. And that impacted me very profoundly. I also grew up as a musician 
And music was another place where I experienced that sense of transcendence and being transported and really almost a sense of communion as a musician. Um, as a performer, you get to experience communion with other players and with your audience, which was always something that I was so impacted by. So all of this beautiful, rich stuff growing up in my faith life. And also at the same time, there was always this sense that it was kind of opaque or distant or hard to understand. And on the few occasions that I brought a friend with me to church, they just seemed totally mystified by everything that was going on. And it kind of bewildered me that something that meant so much to me didn't communicate to so many people. And that's really, you know, the thread that that came through in terms of creating St. Lydia's, which was the first church that I founded, which was a dinner church that took place around the tables where people would cook together and eat together. And on the surface, it looks totally different from a kind of formal liturgical celebration. But in fact, those kind of like very rich, very deep symbols were right at the heart of it. And they were very literal, you know, like when we talked about the Eucharistic feast, we were sitting around tables that were like laden with food and we were literally at that table together for the entire service. So that's a little bit of like the threads between the way I grew up and, and where I ended up as a, as a liturgist and a church planter. Did you want to be a pastor? No. Oh my gosh. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I fought it for a good long time. I arrived at college very much wanting to be a musician and I didn't know it at the time, but it was, it was really more the religious experience that I was seeking more than the musical experience. I was not a music nerd. I was not very good at practicing. I had some kind of like rough gifts of music, but when it came to the perfectionism that's required <laughs> to become a really amazing musician, I just didn't have it. But again, I love that feeling of being so connected with people. And I found that I kept taking courses in Christianity, which led me to divinity school and I kept saying, well, I'm just going to study the relationship between music and the arts and liturgy and worship. You know, I'm just going to study it. That'll be fine. I don't want to be a pastor. And I remember at the time I had this very negative response to emotions and feelings. Like I didn't want to deal with people's feelings. <laughs> and I think actually looking back on it, there was some sort of embedded misogyny in that because I, I think I felt like feelings were kind of girly. And I didn't want to be connected to them. And, I, you know, looking back, I think there was some process happening there around my queerness and my gender queerness, where I was kind of distancing myself from things I perceived as feminine. I had also, as a musician, I was a trombone player. And that's a whole other story. But my relationship to masculinity through music was another piece of, you know, what I was trying to understand. And I think for a long time, playing the trombone and kind of being, you know, with the guys and uh, in that back row filled with like spitballs and, <laughs> you know, like straw wrappers that kind of gave me something that I didn't really know how to name at the time. But I struggled to, to kind of figure out what to do with these sort of different influences of masculinity and femininity in my life. You mentioned kind of earlier, like this journey of kind of, I don't think these were exactly your words, but bringing the masculine and the feminine together within yourself what was that like? I mean, you mentioned you're, you're gender queer. Like, how did you arrive at that? I mean, especially with, with this kind of distancing yourself from the feminine. What brought you back? Just a long process of integration. Um, you know, toward the end of the book, you start to catch a glimpse of the emerging queerness in me. But most of the book takes place during this kind of 10-year period where I'm a young person living in New York, trying to date, 
trying to date cis men and just feeling like so rejected and like nothing ever works. And I'm not, I mean, it's a terrible experience to try and date in New York for anyone. (laughs) 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 That's just an awful thing. But but looking back on it, I was spending so much time kind of trying to become what I thought I was supposed to be in terms of like a pretty girl who wears sexy clothes and like attracts these cis guys with like man buns in Brooklyn. That was the script that I was running at that time. And it just was not working at all. And I did a lot of blaming of these kind of dudes that I went on dates with. And some of them were in fact, not very kind people. (laughs) And at the same time, I wonder if there was some reactivity to the fact that I had not yet understood who I was. And so, yes, it was a, it was a long period of trying to figure out exactly what was happening and kind of squishing myself into this, this version of, of femininity that felt like a performance. And there were these kind of little awakenings along the way. I remember one of my friends actually writing online once that she wears dresses sometimes, but when she does, she feels like she's in drag. And I, I suddenly was like, Oh, that's fascinating. And another friend who wrote about looking for a bathing suit that didn't turn her breasts into something that they weren't. Like she just wanted to wear a bathing suit that didn't like push her breasts up into like another, you know, cup size. She just wanted to have her boobs be her own boobs. And I sort of was like, oh, wow, I'd never thought about that. Like I've been trying my whole life to make my body like do different things than what it's doing. So that sort of slow revelation that um, maybe that process wasn't something that I needed to engage in. Then right at the end of the book, you, you catch this glimpse where I'm sort of walking to my closet and pull out something to wear that's like, quote unquote, more feminine and just have this feeling of just revulsion kind of like royal through me. And I put it back and um, never put on a skirt or a dress again. It felt just like this incredible unburdening and um, just sense of acceptance. And also it was vulnerable, you know, to like start showing up in the world as the person you think you actually are, like you wonder how people will react to that and, and judge it. So it's not as if it's a hundred percent joy, but I do feel like it was a hundred percent freedom, even if there was vulnerability attached to it. Not 100% joy, but 100% freedom. Yeah. I mean, I'm imagining, especially going through that process as a pastor. I mean, it sounds like your church was lovely, but I mean, that adds, I imagine, another kind of level of vulnerability or fear or whatever to the process of of starting to kind of come out or at least present more as yourself. Yeah, that's really true. I think being a pastor puts you in a position where your selfhood is sort of always needed by others and um, kind of contingent on the needs of your community. And it can be hard, I think, to find yourself in the in that context. I think another piece of that is that there's sort of a a vision for how pastors look and act. And the vision depends on the different denominations, but in my denomination like pastors who are women are kind of expected to be not too feminine, not too sexy and kind of staid because you shouldn't be threatening in any way. So as I was going through the process of becoming ordained, you know, it was complicated because some part of me also felt that I would lose my sexuality and lose my femininity. And so I was fighting for that too, which I think caused me to kind of ratchet up my feminine side and in the process kind of lose other pieces of myself that I needed to explore. So it was very multivalent and very complicated. 
I mean, that's so interesting that you used feminine alongside threatening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially feminine or feminized sexuality. A friend of mine once told me, and I, I wish I could find this research because I would love to be able to cite it, but she said that in the Lutheran world, the women who have the most likelihood of getting a job as a pastor wear a skirt, but not high heeled shoes. They wear flat shoes. And I think that says so much. It's like, we want you to be a woman, <laughs> whatever that means, but we also don't want you to be sexualized. So yeah. And that was similar to my experience as a trombonist as well, that, you know, I was sort of existing in this very masculinized world, hyper-masculinized world. And so felt that I had to claim my femininity very strongly and kind of like push back against it. And again, in the process, like lost, yeah, it was kind of like ping-ponging between these notions in our culture of femininity and masculinity. Despite the fact that like from the very moment that I learned of the Kinsey scale, I knew completely that I was in the middle. And that was like years and years and years ago. So it's fascinating how all these pieces can take such a long time I shouldn't say long. They take the time that they take to integrate because our culture is sending us a lot of messages about all of these different pieces of gender and sexuality. Your story is a little bit different in the sense of like so many folks, at least who come on Queerology, have these stories of, of growing up in like hyper conservative or, or at least relatively conservative spaces. And there's, there seems to be this sentiment of, I mean, I know I hold this sentiment of if only I had grown up in a more liberal space, I wouldn't have these issues. And it's so interesting to hear from you, who you did grow up in a relatively affirming space. I'm hearing you say, well, I still had these problems. I mean, they were different. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> but it wasn't these like rainbows and butterflies that I think some of us, at least I w imagine what my life <laughs> would be like, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, our church had, like, I remember seeing folks in drag at our church at a very young age. <laughs> like we would do, we had like a big feast every year and like my choir director would be there like dressed like a medieval princess, you know? And yeah, it was fabulous. And so I think there was always this sort of spectrum of, um, I don't know, like a wide spectrum of okayness, but on top of that also is like the sort of structure that you live in, in your family. And my family was affirming, but also I think had a sense of expectations about what my future would look like that was kind of rooted in, a sort of, you know, 1950s, 1960s experience, which makes sense. So there's those pieces and like expectations from your family. And then there's, um, I think it's different to be accepting of other people than it is to, to know yourself, actually. Like those are two different processes. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, you might imagine a family where, um, for instance, like they're always affirming of all the LGBTQ folks around them. But when it comes to their kid, that's a very different experience for them. So yeah, there's kind of all these layers, you know. <laughs> it's so complex. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Have you heard something on Queerology that's made a big impact on your life? Do you now follow one of my guests because you've met them here? Because of the format of Queerology, you get to meet people in a way that lets you relate and connect. There's something uniquely personal and intimate about the conversations that happen here. If this is something you've experienced, then help me keep these conversations going by making a financial gift and becoming a Queerology Active Listener. You'll get access to the Active Listeners Facebook group right away, a place for all of us to continue these conversations throughout the week. All you need to do is jump over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Choose your gift amount, and you'll be an active listener. It's really easy. 
That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Matthias Roberts. I really look forward to meeting you in the Facebook group. So take me back to that moment. I mean, you've touched on it a little bit. But I mean, this this kind of ping ponging back and forth, different parts of your identity, and then and then what? Again, I'm I'm still holding on to this. It didn't feel it wasn't 100% joy, but it was 100% freedom. So that sounds like it kind of opened up a whole different world for you. Yeah, it really did. And it's a world that was like just a few steps away. I mean. All this time I was, you know, most of my friends were part of the queer community. I was like serving on the board of like the Presbyterian organization for LGBTQ inclusion. Like there was so many, (laughs) it's like so funny in retrospect that it (laughs) took a little while for me to see who I was. But I think there was also a piece involved in my mind that had sort of decided on some level that I couldn't be queer because I hadn't experienced the marginalization that many of my friends had. Like I didn't grow up getting beat up and I didn't have this kind of narrative of like always knowing since I was a kid that I was different in some way. Although to be honest, I did always know that I was different in some way. I just didn't really have a category to put it in. And like, I knew I wasn't a lesbian. And so I was like, well, I must not be queer. You know, like there were so many ways in which I was kind of limiting my own sense of inclusion in this community because it didn't feel obvious or like enough in some way. And it's fascinating to reflect on that because I wonder like why, why I had kind of so many boundaries set up around um, a set of identities that are based on boundarylessness. <laughs> but we do that all the time. I mean, even in the LGBTQ community, we decide like, well, I'm more in than you or you're less acceptable than me. Like I can think a lot about relationships between like kind of cis gay folks and trans women in particular. Like there's just so many ways in which we decide that some people are more mar- marginalized, even in our own community. So, Absolutely. And I think you're highlighting even the kind of the, the deeper complexity of the fact that we do that to ourselves, too. Yeah. But the experience, like from that point of like putting that dress back for the first time and like kind of shyly beginning to look for clothes that I felt like I really wanted to wear and in some ways had always wanted to wear my whole life. <laughs> I had just kind of looked for them in places that they would be acceptable. But now it was like, oh, no, I could totally just order Oxford shoes. Like, that would be fine. (laughs) So that process was like a process of a lot of kind of curiosity. And um, it was kind of exciting and scary and vulnerable. But then the, the feeling of just kind of being in my skin and feeling like myself has been just phenomenal. I mean, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's been... Um, it feels like it's been here all along and yet I couldn't access it. And now that I'm here, it's like, oh, this is so right. And interestingly, my relationship to my body and clothes that I don't feel right in has become heightened in a new way. And that's been kind of fascinating to watch because clearly for years, I kind of pressed myself into clothes that didn't make me feel good. But now the idea of putting them on and looking in the mirror is actually quite painful So sometimes I reflect like, did I actually shift in terms of my orientation and identity, you know, through life? Or has this been something that's been more of like a process of uncovering of something that I was holding at bay? And I don't have an answer to that. Um, I kind of think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, that's making me think of the, the times that I go back to communities of where I was a certain version of myself and like the stark difference of, of being out of that now being more fully myself 
going back, like the box feels that much more constricting. And it's so interesting to even start reflecting on like, how did I feel so okay with this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny too, because you think about like every time I bump into someone who I haven't seen in a long time and they've come out since the last time I've seen them, uh, there's always this sense of like a, just a gush of fresh air kind of wafting through. <laughs> and you think like, oh my gosh, there you are. Like, this is so beautiful. <laughs> um, that's always been my experience. And I never judge or shame. There's never a sense of like, well, why didn't you do this earlier? Or like, wow, you were really like hiding yourself when I knew you long ago. It's just, it's just a feeling of like, oh, I see you. Like, this is wonderful. So I wonder why I continue to kind of feel a little embarrassed about my process, you know, sometimes my partner will, will sort of say, sometimes I'll say, um, well, you know, it took me a long time to come out and my partner who's trans will be like, it takes, you know, it takes what it takes. It's, it's not a long time or a short time. Like for some people it takes their whole life. And that doesn't mean that anything was lost or wasted. It's so interesting because I mean, I did, I did, so I read your first chapter and I skipped and read the the last chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Always a good strategy. And we'll fill in the middle exactly. later. Exactly. <laughs> but it was it's fascinating to me that you end the book with this idea of resurrection. But resurrection is you leaving a community. That's true, actually. I hadn't quite thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even I mean, even in this conversation, as we're kind of talking about like looking at those those past parts of ourselves, those those former parts of ourselves that we may feel shame around or embarrassed around or question why did it take me so long? This idea of resurrection as a leaving of something, leaving something behind was really beautiful to me. Yeah, you know, and it reminds me that um, that's what it looks like in the Bible. You know, the resurrection is just the last few verses. <laughs> or chapters in some cases. But yeah, this kind of like burst of life and the breaking open of death happens and then Jesus is gone. And I think that sense of, um, again, to return to transcendence, that sense of transcendence and the sort of ephemeral quality of the living God with us has always been something that's really fascinated me. Much of St. Lydia's is built around the story of the road to Emmaus and this moment where these, you know, there's these two disciples walking along the road and Jesus comes alongside them. And for most of the time, they don't realize who he is. And then right at the end of their conversation with him, when they've kind of said like intuitively, well, come and stay with us. You know, there's something about him that's making them respond. (laughs) They still can't put their finger on it, but they're sitting with him at the table and he breaks the bread and suddenly they realize like, this is God next to us. And then he's gone, like in that moment. And that sense of like the fleeting quality of God's presence with us has always been something that I've found really important because most of life is just like making it through life, <laughs> you know, but there's, there's these moments that I think we can remember and hang on to where suddenly things are clear or we, we have this sense of God's like living presence in our lives. And I think, you know, maybe our sense of identity is the same way that we're kind of looking around and trying to find something for such a long time. And there's these moments of saying like, Oh, like here I am. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Like, I mean, I'm even, as you're talking, I'm, I'm reflecting on these ideas of, of resurrection of, of Jesus coming back, but coming back in a transformed state. There's something very different about the Jesus that has risen from the Jesus that was 
on the earth, but the same Jesus, right? Like, I mean, as you, as you talk about this kind of fuller vision of people who have, you know, walked into the, the fullness of themselves, there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah. And I think, you know, another theme that's been really present for me lately, especially during what we're going through with COVID and what we're going through in terms of um, racial justice in this country and this kind of, you know, very, very long road that is continuing to kind of open and, and break open. I think in the church, we we focus a lot on the way that Jesus gathers us around tables and we do all this gathering on Sunday. And it's always about kind of community making and gathering. But right now, and at the end of the book as well, I've been thinking a lot about this kind of scattering aspect of the gospel. And, you know, Jesus does a lot of sending people out as well into very uncertain territory. And they don't have very many tools. They don't have a lot of equipment and they don't have a lot of training. And he sends them out to like preach and teach and heal. And, and also at the end of the gospels in this resurrected moment, you know, there's confusion, there's scattering, there's a lot of unclarity about what comes next. So I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And, and the book kind of ends also on this note of being kind of like, not cast out, but certainly kind of having left on like an uncertain road from this, from this table, you know, of the community I was part of and um, heading out into uncertainty and unknowingness, but with a greater sense of understanding of myself and a new kind of opening to listen for the next iteration of call. I mean, that, that's just making me think of the, the name of your new church, the church that you're at right now, Dreams and Visions. I mean, that, that's making me, I, I'm assuming that's from kind of the scriptures of, of I'm, I'm going to butcher the verse. <laughs> <laughs> One of like young people will dream and <laughs> you don't need to have it memorized. <laughs> That's like a Bible verse, though, right? Yes, like... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, dreams and visions is drawn from the prophet Joel, where the prophet says that um, the elders will dream dreams and the youth will have visions. Yes, that's um, the one. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> And I love it so much. And it also is repeated. That passage is repeated on the day of Pentecost as Peter is preaching. That's the passage that's invoked when the church is being born in this sort of wind and fire of the Holy Spirit that comes down in a, in a really kind of violent movement. I mean, actually the word violent wind is used in the, in the passage. So there's nothing kind of neat or pretty or tied up about any of these experiences. Like they're so chaotic, <laughs> but you know, there's this rush of the wind and everyone's speaking in different languages and this great sort of diverse uh, multicultural birthing of the church. And in all the midst of that, you know, Peter says quotes from the prophet Joel, um, your elders will dream dreams and your youth will see visions. And I, and I love that. I think there's a sense of like constant possibility about what could be. Some of my work as a pastor has been to be in, as involved as I can be in community organizing work and for me, that work is 100% rooted in the notion that we are having the boldness to dream God's dream for our world. Like, what would God dream for us? And often um, we ask for things that seem impossible, <laughs> but that's the role of the prophet. And in my, in my experience, the role of the activist and the organizer to kind of shout into the, into the night and say, like, this isn't working anymore. We have to dream a different kind of dream. And I think, you know... In what we're hearing from leaders and activists in our country right now, like for some people, it feels you know impossible that we would abolish or defund the police. But what that sort of opens to is a complete, a completely new imagination of what community safety could look like. 
And I do think it's possible if we allow ourselves to imagine. <laughs> That's like a holy, a holy imagination. I love the idea of imagination being a theological category because it's, it's this realm of possibility of imagining something different, imagining something better, uh, more full. Yeah, and I would love to encourage it as a spiritual practice for Christian communities. I think that that's a practice that many of our communities have lost as we've kind of moved toward maybe the maintenance of our congregations. But to have dreaming and visioning and imagining, like a holy sense of imagination woven through our practices as a church, I mean, I think that could really change so much. One of the examples I might give is, and it's pretty simple, dreams and visions needed to come together to kind of imagine what we're going to look like <laughs> during this time of COVID and quarantine. And, you know, we kind of got through the triage period and now we're thinking, well, what do we do next? And I was like, okay, we'll have a community meeting. And then I thought to myself like, oh, we should have a community dreaming. <laughs> that would be better. <laughs> like that's our name. Um, and that's our call is to be dreaming. And so I called it a community dreaming. And one of our congregants made this like beautiful image for it that just felt like so like tangible and evocative and it totally changes the tone of the conversation to say that we're coming together to dream as opposed to plan. And we need to plan too. You know, once we know what our dreams are, we can, we can put some scaffolding and structure around that. <laughs> but um, yeah, when we frame our work as a church around God's dream, it really changes everything. And for ourselves as well, like to think, what's God's dream for you as a person? Like might be to live into the fullness of yourself or to be able to set down this thing that you've been, you know, forming your life around for such a long time. That's not life-giving. I'm thinking of like how holding both these, these realities of how incredible dreaming imagination is. And also I'm thinking of, of way back when I wasn't out, how terrifying, how scary dreaming imagination could be. And I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to those parts, the, the parts of us who are still living in under oppression or within systems of where dreaming and imagination feels like terror. I think that God wants us to be free. I don't think God wants um, fear or trepidation or anxiety or endless worry to form our lives. I just don't think that's what God wants that doesn't sound like God's dream for us to me. <laughs> and I think, you know, the large majority of stories in the Bible are not about people who stay in the same place and continue to be comfortable. Um, <laughs> they are stories about people who, whose lives are upended and say yes to this um, disrupting activity of God. But in my reading those stories almost always bring them to a place of greater freedom and um, possibility. I don't think those stories lead them back to where they started, back to those kind of old narratives of, um, of bondage, really. A lot of this is rooted actually in Martin Luther. I became a Lutheran later in life. And one thing I love about him is that he's not a systematic theologian. He's like always changing his mind. <laughs> like you can't pin him down on anything, which I really appreciate because I also feel that theology is like very fluid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and there's actually a real beauty in that, you know, like we can't pin down God. <laughs> but another thing I love about him is that he places the reasoning for his theology in the experience of his congregants, you know, like looking at his congregants and saying, these people 
are filled with anxiety and worry because they are scared that they will not be saved and that they haven't done enough to earn God's grace. And he doesn't sort of do big, you know, theological, logical gymnastics. He just says, that's not who God is. That's not what God wants for us. And I think that that's right. And that all of our theology has to kind of pour out from that place of God wanting us to live from a place of life and not from a place of death. Like that's the story of the resurrection. And God is always calling us into life and certainly not asking us to play, to stay in places of shadows or in places of um, fear, for sure. But easier said than done, right? <laughs> in terms yeah. of like opening up into that promise. It's very hard. <laughs> right. We, I mean, because as you, as you say that, like I'm sitting here thinking like, oh, it's such, a, it's such a beautiful, simple statement to just be able to say, that's not what God wants for us. It's a whole nother thing to actually then start living as if that were true or to even be able to start to believe that not even live that way, but to believe that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially if you've been weighted down with messages that are all about your not enoughness or your not rightness. I can't imagine trying to come up through those messages to find a life giving way of being in the world. But I had a professor um, in divinity school named Dr. Storm Swain. And she introduced to me the kind of like a framing that I go back to all the time, which is what she uses for pastoral care in terms of how we care for people. And it's simply, is this life giving or death dealing? And I use that question all the time, especially in talking about sexuality with, with congregants, because I actually am not concerned about the, the shape or arrangement of your sexual relationships. What I'm concerned about is <laughs> whether they're life giving or death dealing to you and the, and your partner or partners. And I think that that really shifts um, the conversation. You know, it's because some of our religious conceptions about sexuality have been so restraining. We haven't really given people a lot of language to find something that is more healthy and open. And it's a problem. But I think that because of this void of like very much ethical conversation around sexuality from a religious or Christian context, like people are just kind of like, well, I guess it's a free for all. I should should just do what I want, (laughs) which like sometimes that's a great thing to do, you know, (laughs) like follow your, (laughs) you know, your impulses. But I think that I've found that framing to be so, so helpful to say, well, is it life-giving for you? Is it life-giving for the person that you're encountering? If so, like, sounds great. Go for it. (laughs) And if there's a death dealing piece of this or a death dealing piece that emerges, attend to that. So that's a whole other conversation, but I think the need for healthy sexual ethics from a faith-based perspective is just, it's just huge. We've really failed to, to have that conversation because it's scary. <laughs> it is scary. Mm-hmm. You're, you're speaking my language right now. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite pe- way for people to find your work? Oh, my favorite way would be my book, for sure. <laughs> my book is called For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. I wrote it hoping it could be a companion for people who are starting something new or for people who are you know, coming into their own sense of identity and self or people who are discovering how to work for justice, like all those pieces of kind of moving moving into new things. So yeah, that would be the first. And then I'm on Facebook and Instagram and my website is emilymdscott.com. So I'm there as well with some writing and things like that collected on my website. 
Well, this has been so lovely. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Be sure to pick up a copy of Emily's book, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World, wherever you buy books. She's also on Instagram, at broken underscore bread, and her website is emilymdscott.com. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram, at queerologypod, or you can tweet me directly, at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible through your support. To find out how you can keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. Until next time, y'all. Bye! Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.